With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success. And practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes, and now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us uh, here today. As always, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we always start with page one news. First up here on uh, page one news, we've got uh, Ashley Gatewood is here with us, and Ashley is here with us uh, from CFRE International. Uh, welcome here back to the nonprofit coach, Ashley Gatewood. Hi, great to be here today. How are you doing? Good, Ashley. It's good to have you back. So uh, bring us up to a date on everything that's going on at CFRE International. Yeah, sure. So our next application deadline is January 15th. So it's that time of year when a lot of people are looking at their professional development budgets. And if they have use it or lose it funds, it's really common that people will talk to their boss at this time of the year to see if they might be able to use some of those funds towards their CFRE application costs. So if that applies to your listeners, that might be a conversation well worth them having with their employer. And our other news is that we continue to work on finding a remote proctoring solution. We know a lot of people are hesitant to take the CFRE exam in an in-person testing center right now, and we have been working since April to find a solution, and it's been um, quite a journey, but we do continue to work towards that, and so hopefully we'll have a firm announcement coming in the next month or so. Well, it's also a great time of year to begin uh, making sure that you've got plans for your New Year's resolution to get your CFRE and to uh, make sure that you've got those plans in place. 
Absolutely. And when you submit your CFA application, you have one year to sit for the exam. So, you know, it's common that people would submit their application before the end of this year, use up those professional development funds, and then start hitting the books in the new year. How have the applications been? Obviously, the, there's new challenges for all nonprofit organizations uh, with COVID and uh, fundraising and just managing nonprofits uh, as we've, uh, we've explored so many times. Uh, how is that affecting applications and nonprofits' ability to focus on CFRE? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So we've been pretty pleasantly surprised to see that the number of applications this year is uh, beating the number of applications we had at the same time in 2019. So I think a lot of people are taking stock of their career. If people have extra time on their hands, it's finally the right time for them to start on their application or have those extra hours back in their week studying. We've heard from people that say, that I would use those towards uh, advancing my CFRE. So for us, we're definitely seeing a, a really healthy amount of interest. And I think to your point, Ted, a lot of people realize that the job market in 2021, you know, the new year, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty and people want to get prepared. Well, certainly uh, preparing uh, for change is one of the uh, topics that we're going to be covering uh, today on our page uh, two uh, for, uh, uh, for all nonprofits as we explore today uh, fundraising in times of crisis uh, with, Kim, uh, with Kim Klein. Um, obviously, for, for CFRE uh, International, uh, the new year is, is approaching, um, as, uh, as you said, um, this is a time for um, everyone who uh, can be eligible to get their application in and to focus. And as you said, you know, perhaps there are year-end dollars that can be uh, attributed. But how about for the organization it's, itself? What's, uh, what's the focus of, of uh, CFRE International as we uh, begin looking at 2021? Yeah, um, excellent point. So we, for next year, we're looking to do a lot more webinars. We're working with a lot of different organizations, chapters, and bringing them information about CFRE. And we continue to have more applications from folks working outside of North America. So Canada is the best market per capita for CFRE. We have more CFREs there per capita than any other country. Um, followed by the U.S., but we have had uh, several new CFREs in Europe this year. We continue to see a growing interest in Australia. So we will keep building those relationships and getting the word out um, because it is a truly international certification. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, growing around, uh, around the world. So uh, very impressive. And as you know, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we encourage all of our listeners uh, to consider sitting for the CFRE uh, exam as soon as they are eligible. So, uh, Ashley, thank you so much uh, for joining us here again on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much. Take care. And it is time to head on over to page two.
Kim Klein is a noted figure in the field of grassroots fundraising, both as a writer and a practitioner. She provides training and consulting through Klein and Roth Consulting. Klein is the author of best-selling Fundraising for Social Change, now in its seventh edition, and two books specifically about fundraising in difficult circumstances, Reliable Fundraising in Unreliable Times, and Fundraising in Times of Crisis, the focus of uh, our topic today. She has provided training and consulting in all 50 states and 21 other countries. She's recently retired from teaching at the University of California, Berkeley School of Social welfare, and most importantly, uh, she's here with us today on The Nonprofit Coach. Welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach, Kim Klein. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Kim, it's great to have you here. And, of course, our, our producer, Diane Peach, uh, uh, is here with us, so we'll give her an opportunity just to, to say hello. Uh, Diane, uh, go ahead and say, say hello. Hi, As everyone. we get started here. Uh, Diane's done. Uh, yeah, it's great to have you here. And Diane's done an outstanding job, as she always does, in uh, bringing us topics uh, that are timely. And of course, fundraising in times of crisis um, is exactly where we are today, uh, Kim. And uh, as, as many of my listeners uh, know, I'm the president and CEO of uh, the International Donor Advice Fund, CAF America. Uh, we've done a series of surveys of charities around the world. We've published uh, five um, reports on uh, uh, the effects of COVID um, global pandemic on charities. And one of the things that some of the things that we have learned in those surveys, Kim, is that the pandemic is relentless for charities and that fundraising has been very difficult for a lot of charities and that one third of charities around the world report that they may not be able to keep their doors open uh, past the next 12 months. Another third of charities report that they are going to have to reinvent themselves to be able to uh, stay uh, uh, in business. And, and a third of charities may, in fact, after this pandemic is over, may be the charities that we you know, knew before the pandemic started. So, so Kim Klein, let's, let's start with, we are in a time of crisis. So is, are everyone looking at you and saying, boy, you're, you know all about this and you wrote a book for our times? Uh, well, people are asking me about that, and it's sort of funny because, of course, I uh, I did write about two major uh, crises, worldwide crises, the uh, post-9-11 and uh, post-2008 uh, market crash, but I'm not quite old enough to have lived through the Spanish flu <laughs> pandemic, so <laughs> I honestly, uh, in some ways, uh, your guess and everyone else's guess is as good as mine about what uh, COVID, and particularly how long it's lasting, is going to mean uh, for uh, organizations. But I do think we have some things we can learn from uh, previous uh, crises and, of course, from the really fine work that uh, you're doing with these, uh, with these surveys. I, I do want to commend that because I'm just the first time that I've seen, actually, where professional associations um, have really have the skill and, you know, the technology and uh, also just kind of got it together to try to proactively think what is this going to mean and try to get ahead of it. And so we're in a much better place, even though this is a probably a worse crisis in a lot of ways, we're in a slightly better place to face it. And uh, so I do 
uh, I do thank you, Ted, for the work you've been doing on that. Well, well, thank you. But let's let's um, let's follow your your logic there because that 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 seems to be uh, hopeful um, that you you feel that we're in a in perhaps a better place uh, as uh, as a society as as a community of philanthropists of donors of of nonprofits of fundraisers. Um, what do you mean by that? Help us understand why should we perhaps be hopeful. Um, well, for one thing, I'll tell you my philosophy is it takes uh, as much energy to be hopeful as to be hopeless. So I always just sort of err on the side of that because we don't we don't know. Uh, the other thing I would say that, uh, and this was true in the other, a lot, I studied a lot of crises when I wrote the two books that I uh, wrote. Um, and I think this is true. Uh, what I'm about to say is very, very true now that, organizations that have problems, the problems get magnified in a crisis, but organizations right now, in my experience, and also I'm sure you know this, and a number of studies show the organizations that had really robust and really healthy fundraising programs, which is not very many, <laughs> they're actually doing fine. And they're going to end this year in a good place. Now, starting next year, nonprofits are counter-cyclical. So, uh, crises, for example, 2008, the organizations that had real problems in 2008 and 2009 from the um, uh, market meltdown, they were already in trouble before that happened, and, and the crisis just simply exa- exacerbated. I mean, I live in California, so kind of a metaphor we use here is you can have a crack in your wall, and then you have an earthquake, and then you have a big hole in your wall. But the fact is you had a crack in your foundation. That, that was present, and the earthquake simply really magnified it. So COVID has magnified problems that groups, organizations are having problems right now. I think if they look back, they'll say those problems were present and COVID has simply pulled the the sort of veil down for them. And this is a chance really for people to reinvent. And when you said groups are going to have to reinvent, I think that's not, I think that's a good thing. I think the bench that most organizations operate from, the tiny margins that they operate from, the amount of stuff they take on to do with the amount of staffing and volunteers they have, the, the way overemphasis on major gifts and donor advised funds and foundations as opposed to building a really broad base of donors, um, you know, the way that boards, uh, the boards are uh, often not very functional and uh, there's just so, so many problems of professionalization that has really taken the place of building a movement, um, the focus on institutionalizing, making your organization permanent rather than kind of thinking about, well, what's the work that we do and how can we put ourselves out of business, particularly in the uh, world of direct service organizations. There are just so, so many problems, and they are now on drugs with uh, not just COVID, but really with climate change and um, the attention that's being paid to racial and economic justice and so on. But that's not, that may feel like a bad thing, but that's not a bad thing for our sector. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right. So let's, 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 um, you know, let's break that down a a little bit because this, um, you know, this phenomenon that you're talking about, you know, certainly came out, um, you know, very loudly in the CAF America, you know, global surveys um, that, that we've published. Um, in in the fact that many 
fault lines uh, have been laid bare. Uh, and certainly one that, that you've mentioned that there's been a lot written about and certainly a lot of donors are very focused on are the, the fault lines of social justice uh, around the country. Um, certainly those didn't come into existence um, because of COVID, um, but they were laid bare because of COVID. Um, but there's also other parts of the world that, that, that we see as well. For instance, uh, in South Africa, um, you know, the COVID has been less of an issue in South Africa than has been the issue of hunger uh, in South Africa, mm-hmm. which has been laid bare. Hunger existed before, but has really been brought to the surface because of the problems of, 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 of uh, COVID. And I think you're absolutely mm-hmm. right in the point that you're bringing up here is that the many of the problems that nonprofits are experiencing right now existed before, but not to the level of crisis, and, which is you know, obviously the topic of our conversation today. Um, COVID brought them to the level of crisis, and that is many nonprofits uh, were not financially sound. Uh, they were, you know, literally fr- running the organization from campaign to campaign. And so uh, having a, uh, a fundraising appeal falter because of COVID or because a, a campaign was not able to be completed or because volunteers were not able to participate or for a myriad of different reasons the plan was not able to be executed, um, suddenly the organization didn't have a plan B. Um, because it was right. that close to the edge to begin with. Um, and, and that's, I think, an issue that, you know, we've certainly seen uh, volume four of our survey. We turned the, um, the mirror on uh, telling the story of corporate donors and the, the experience of corporate donors during the global pandemic and what corporate donors were learning about their experience of giving money during uh, the global pandemic and what they were trying to uh, um, respond to. And many of them were um, trying to be less rigid. They were trying to give more uh, non-restricted funds. They were rewriting grant uh, terms. They were, so a lot of things that were very helpful to charities uh, in terms of actually giving uh, you know, non-restricted grants. Um, actually supporting things like, you know, paying the rent uh, and, and, you know, paying the light bill and things of that sort that oftentimes are very difficult uh, for charities um, to get grant dollars for um, suddenly, you know, became available because of the, of the need that was so um, evident during the early days of, of COVID and whether or not that would continue um, to be uh, available uh, for grant dollars going forward, and, and a general thought that perhaps uh, grant making itself needs to change um, going going forward. But because charities didn't have a reserve, they didn't have any place to go. Some charities do, and so to your point, uh, those that were well managed, those that had a plan B, those that had reserves, um, were able to do, be just fine but the vast majority of charities did not fit in that category. So that brings us right back right. to the topic of the book. Well, I do want to uh, also kind of say that something, because I work a lot with very small organizations, right? Um, 
that I think we also need to reconceptualize the notion of reserve. So a reserve can mean that you have actually money in the bank, which is a great thing. I'm totally in favor of it. But, uh, you know, you can lose that money, too. I mean, the market tumbled yesterday. You know, we saw in 2009 uh, organizations that had really large endowments were suddenly without. So what I like to see an organization have in reserve is a broad base of individual donors, of people who will step forward. And if those people, for some reason, don't have lost their jobs or don't have as much money, they'll step forward as volunteers or they'll step forward with what they have. And they will feel, and this is something I think organizations do not do very well. They have someone, for example, who gives, uh, I have an actual personal example of this from a friend who gives $1,000 a year uh, to an organization and has for some years and then lost his job and this year sent $50, and, and the treatment of this person was entirely different. I mean, he got this kind of form, thank you. He, you know, and uh, you sort of think, no, this is a long-time donor. He's been giving between 250 and one time, I think, up, up to $2,500 a year for like 14 years. This year he decides to give 50 because uh, of his circumstances, and he's just kind of cast to the side and basically, you know, the, the message is your money is the amount of money you're giving isn't enough. Well, that's not an attitude that builds a reserve. What we want is a reserve. And the other thing these corporations, I think, kind of point point to, and there's a lot of issues with corporate philanthropy that I think would fill another show, but is the lack of reserve of trust. So we need to do a much better job to build trust. It's, it always reminds me when I see people on the street, I pass a homeless person, for example, who has a dog, and they'll hand the homeless person a dollar and say, this is just for your dog. Well, it's sort of like, if you don't trust this person to handle the money properly, why will you trust them to only spend it on dog? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's completely <laughs> absurd. And this is, a, this is a thing of restricted money. It's completely absurd at the face of it. And the, and the very existential nature of restricted money is absurd. Because you trust, you either trust the organization to do the right thing with the money and spend it where it needs to be spent and spend it properly, or you don't. But you don't take an organization, you're basically, when you restrict money, you're basically saying to them, we don't trust you, and so we're going to tie this money up. In some, and, of course, in the case of a grant, has actually legal implications, whereas a, a homeless person doesn't. But we're going to tie this up in a bunch of legal knots and tie you up in knots, and then we'll give you the money. But, you know, that, that there's something just fundamentally wrong there that I think could be addressed and we could come out on the other side of this um, a crisis. Uh, and you're right that in many countries it is a crisis of hunger, and it is going to be and has already started to be a crisis of hunger here in the United States, hunger and homelessness. Uh, so That's right. we, we can come out on the other side in an entirely different place with high reserves of trust, high reserves of people who feel welcomed, that whatever gifts they have to give are welcomed and needed and will be put to work properly. We just, we, you know, so I, I am very hopeful that people will seize this moment. You hear people talk a lot about wanting to return to normal. Normal, no, let's not return there. Normal was not working. Normal was horrible. Right. We had huge wealth inequality and massive normal. racism. We had, you know, normal was awful. Let's never go back to normal. Let's go somewhere else. Well, for the yeah, I think you're absolutely right. For 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 a very large number of my listeners today, representing uh, charitable organizations, normal was not a healthy way to run your charitable organization. Right. Um, you know, from from campaign to campaign, and not with a you know a strong balance sheet. So, talk us through in in your book. 
um, you talk about the immediate steps for managing a crisis, which for many of perhaps two-thirds of our listeners uh, today represent uh, nonprofit organizations that are in that immediate management of crisis situation. Um, so what, what are those immediate steps that they should be thinking about right now? They're coming into the holiday season, which, you know, for many organizations, it's do or die fundraising time and it's do or die fundraising time during a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. So that's a really, uh, really great question. Very practical. Uh, so one is actually to sit, take a deep breath, kind of really think, you know, how much, uh, how much of a crisis are we actually in as opposed to the one that we're imagining? Okay, we're kind of, uh, and, you know, there, there's a very fine line between planning, which is also a good thing, and I'm totally in favor of it, and then imagining. And when we imagine, that can be good if we're a novelist, but uh, if you're a nonprofit executive, you, you tend to imagine the worst. So you just kind of look forward to January, and you're like, oh, my God, you know, it's going to be horrible. Well, Let's not worry about January. Let's just kind of let's just move through November, December. Uh, so that's one. It's kind of think really what is really happening. What is our retention rate? I've seen a lot of groups of very so far this year their retention rate of donors is the same as last year, and in some cases better. So uh, so you, you know you hear these stories, you read them. I mean, I think the news is very much if it bleeds, it leads. Um, about all these horrible things that are happening. Even in your study, you're like a third of charities, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, two-thirds of charities, that won't happen to you. Why can't you imagine you would be in the two-thirds instead of the third? So that's one. It's just sit for a second. Second is think about what are your assets. Do you have – who are your biggest donors? And, you know, some of the really biggest donors – are completely unaffected or, in fact, are wealthier during this crisis. This is different from 2008. This is very different in that way, that people who have any of the, you know, the what do they call them, the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Alphabet, Network, uh, Netflix, and Google, they're uh, doing very well. People heavily invested in tech and the stock market are doing very well. Even if the market drops, it's still pretty high. It, it could continue to drop. That could be a problem. But I would say to people, Right now, any right now, don't wait till December, Giving Tuesday, all this stuff. Right now, as soon as you can, see any of the donors you have who give you stock and ask them to make their stock gifts now while the market is high, while the tax advantages are high. And I see groups doing that. A number of my clients moved their year-end fundraising up to September and October, and they have done very well, and they're now able to glide. I mean, they're still working very hard but they're able to move into December without so much anxiety because they moved the whole thing up. There's no magic. As you know, Ted, I think you're a little younger than I am, but December didn't used to be the only month we raised money. (laughs) It became that over time. When I was first in fundraising, there was almost an agreement, a tacit agreement, that only direct service organizations raised money in December. Everybody else did it the rest of the year. But December was where the real – you know, first of all, you have these holidays very focused on need and love and giving and so on. And also because in North America, in the Northern Hemisphere, it's so cold uh, that, you know, hunger and homelessness and so on is maybe more uh, profound. So, but over time, more and more people started, and I think this was surely out of, you had too much to do, so you kept kicking the, the can down the road a little bit about when you're, 
annual your annual peel as though it used to be fall, then it was sort of late fall, then it was winter, and and now it's December. And then of course it's heavy, heavy focus on one day giving Tuesday. I mean, it's amazing, but there's no magic to that. There's no science to that. That's just that just happened. So we could break out of that. And I would say to people, try to get a head start uh, on what you're doing. The, and the third thing is, and then I'll pause for because uh, I, I think you might have a question. Is <laughs> focus not focus on your message, but on your messengers. Get people who are trusted in your community to say good things about you, and particularly to say that's a really stable organization. They're going to continue to do their work. They're doing fantastic work. They're being they're really pivoting in a good way. I mean, in every community, in the biggest city, uh, I live in a little bitty town with about 600 people, but in every community there are three or four people who you know most of the uh, donors or most of the thought leaders will go to them and say, what's happening with so-and-so group? What's happening with that organization? And they trust that person. And those aren't always your biggest donors. Sometimes they're uh, clergy. Sometimes they're just long-time people living in the community. Um, so get some messengers out there carrying a message that this is really an important time to give. And the other thing is to focus on, although there's very high unemployment and so on, there's still a lot of essential workers. There's still a lot of people who have jobs. They have the same income as they had before. Focus on them. Don't focus on lack. Focus on where, on assets and where, uh, where you could uh, get some money. And if there's any cost, you can postpone. Uh, you know, obviously do that. But one of the rules I had when I, I worked a lot after any economic downturn, one of the rules I have with any organization that's in financial trouble and they call me to work with them, I say, I will work with you under one condition, that no one, no one that I come in contact with in your organization, your board, your staff, your volunteers, whatever, no one can talk about cutting your budget. That word cutting is not on the table. And then people will be like, what? Well, how are we supposed to get through? We don't mm -hmm. cut. I said, I don't know. Let's let's think on it. And when you take that option off the table, you take that card off the table, no cutting, everybody has to sit and think, okay, then how are we going to raise the money? Cutting is the easy solution. But when you start cutting, it's a slippery slope, and pretty soon you're just cutting, cutting, cutting. And very few, as you pointed out earlier, very few organizations have anything to cut, cutting fat. Yeah. There is no fat. They're cutting straight into bone. And so don't cut. Don't cut. Just focus on where you can you get this money. Is there anything you can do with time that wasn't required money? Can you bring in volunteers? I mean, let's be a, be a little bit more creative, at least temporarily. You may eventually have to cut your budget. That's possible. But don't go there first. And I, I think that's a dangerous habit we've gotten into is immediately going to cuts, furloughs, layoffs, things like that. It's not a good idea. So it, so it sounds to me like the, you know, the very first thing that you're recommending to listeners today is, you know, don't, don't sweat the long term, but de define and design that short term strategy that's focused on stability. And part of that right. stability is the messaging of survival, right? Because no one likes to, you know, jump on a sinking ship. So part of right. the, the messaging is that, you know, we're here to stay and that we have a plan for survival and we have a plan for strength. And, and this, is, this is how we're going to do that. And, and, and if you're focused on that and you're convincing on that, then people are going to want to rally around your capacity to do that because they want to rally around winners. 
Yes, that's exactly right. People, you you just said an enormous mouthful there, so I'm just going to underline it at the risk of being um, repetitive. People love winners. You know, that's why you look at some place like Harvard or Yale and you think, they don't need to even raise any more money. They could stay open for years, <laughs> off their endowment, years and years and years. And yet people continue to give them money. And why? Because they think, well, that's a stable institution. They continue to leave the money in their wills. Why? They don't need the money. Well, that's a stable institution. That's always going to be here. That's what people are attracted to. They're attracted to big ideas. That's why Black Lives Matter. I think partly, you know, people are finally beginning to face a level of racism and white supremacy in our country. But also I think the ideas that have been put forward out of the movement for black lives and black lives matter and a lot of the racial justice stuff as well as also the immigrant rights movement are so big people are attracted to them they're like yes that's the place i want to live that's where i i want to go um and you see that around the world these you know uh, countries that will be kind of like we're not going to have mining here anymore wow what how could that be and people love that so don't hunker down. You know, you're not a, a little frightened mouse. You'd have to get in your little right. hole and hunker there until the cat passes. You know, you got to get out there. Get out there. We're going to take a very quick break, and when we uh, when we come back, I, I want to ask you to help us understand where your um, the 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 part of the book where you focus on mis- mission, message, and damage control. Help us, where does that fit in? Because mission is so important to your message and to the, short, the both the short-term and the long-term strategy. And I want to make sure that in our drive to get to the strategy, our drive to show stability and strength, we aren't missing out on mission and message. And we'll be right back. Nonprofits are changing the world. Whether your organization focuses on bringing clean and safe drinking water to everyone on the planet or caring for people in your local community, nonprofits like yours are making a difference every single day. But nonprofits also face a unique set of challenges. How to manage volunteers and operations on a limited budget. How to get the word out about your organization and mission through storytelling and how to drive more engagement from donors to fundraise for your nonprofit. We believe that nonprofits should be able to focus more energy on their mission and making an impact, which is why we launched Google for Nonprofits to provide access to Google's technology and services at no charge for nonprofits in more than 50 countries around the world. Your nonprofit can collaborate and communicate more effectively with smart, secure business apps from G Suite. With Gmail, your nonprofit employees and volunteers can send email from your nonprofit's custom domain. Teams can stay connected from different locations by using Google Hangouts and Chat. And you can access and collaborate on documents from anywhere with Google Drive. Increase your productivity so you can spend more time serving your cause or community. Through Google for Nonprofits, eligible organizations can receive free advertising to run ads on Google Search. Google Ads enables your organization to appear in ads on Google Search when someone's searching for topics related to your mission. Your nonprofit can receive free advertising to raise awareness, drive donations, and recruit volunteers. Tell the story of your organization through video to create an emotional connection to your cause. With YouTube, 
nonprofits can expand their audience, reach new supporters, and connect viewers to their mission. And finally, imagine that your donors and supporters could see exactly where their donations are making a difference. With Google Earth and Maps, nonprofits can create compelling custom maps that help tell their story to the world. Nonprofits are changing the world. We are here to help. Learn more at google.com slash nonprofit. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always free and always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now back to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Kim Klein. Our topic today is fundraising in times of crisis. Um, and uh, Kim, before we uh, left on uh, break, uh, we were um, asking that we focus on mission, message, and damage control, and, and specifically on the importance of mission and message. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, of course, uh, I am a really big believer that organizations have to be completely mission-driven. There's been a lot of talk in the last number of years about um, donor-centric fundraising and, uh, you know, focusing more on donors. And I think a lot of the philosophies of that are really important. I, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to people who have uh, promoted that and written about it because <clears throat> because there's a, a way in which um, nonprofits also get into trouble when they treat their donors in this very transactional style or it's very much like the donors are kind of ATMs and uh, we go to them when we need money and otherwise we walk on by them. So I get that. But I think what happened is, and I, I don't think this was necessarily the intent of the people who wrote about this, that donor-centric fundraising became something that people latched onto without reading the whole thing, without understanding the whole philosophy, and started to say, we have to focus on what the donors want. And, of course, there were also foundations in particular that were very bossy about their grant making, and they would create these initiatives and uh, this money, and you could get it if you did this and that and did the hokey pokey. And, um, you know, so people would kind of twist themselves around to, to get that, uh, to get that funding. And I understand that when you need money. <clears throat> but organizations have to be very mission-focused. Now, Everybody is probably thinking, well, yeah, so what else is new? But here's the thing. A lot of times organizations, actually even the key staff, the board, the volunteers, actually are not clear on what the mission really is and what it means. What is it? How does it change? So, for example, you might have a, a mission uh, focused very much on, um, uh, on uh, say, affordable housing, creating affordable low-income housing. And then you have a situation like this that we see in a lot of parts of this country where um, people are losing their housing uh, their, uh, or housing prices are dropping because people like here in California, people are leaving the state to go elsewhere where they can get housing more easily. So uh, the mission within has to maybe shift slightly, still focus on housing, the nature of housing, but it may shift slightly to do much more about paying people's rent or passing more stringent rent control laws or figuring out ways to help uh, landlords, good landlords and good tenants 
uh, work together and work things out. So the mission has to have some flexibility to meet the times because the times change. In order to meet the times, you have to know you have to know what it is. I mean, this is like a classic of uh, if you don't know where you're going, any uh, any road will get you there. And I think too many organizations they have these sort of taglines. They want to do they're for everything good and against everything bad, but there's not there's not a lot of real substance there, and they haven't taken the time mm-hmm. to really talk that through. What does that mean? So uh, yeah. this is a good opportunity. To do yeah. that. For, for for several years, um, I served as a consultant uh, to a number of different organizations, and one of the things that that they would have me do is uh, assist um, their member organizations. These were very large um, associations. Uh, to go around the country and to help their associations become more effective. And one of the exercises that I would go through is I would start off and I'd often be meeting with groups of boards of directors and groups of administrative staff. And I would often start off by reading the mission statement as stated in the bylaws of the organization. (laughs) And, uh, and most of the time, it would be bewildering to the people who I was meeting with that <laughs> they would have no idea what I was talking about. And, and, oh, and I would say, well, that's, that, that's your mission statement. And they hadn't heard it before. <laughs> they hadn't read it before oh, um, because most organizations, what I find is that they manage themselves out of habit. They actually don't know what their bylaws say. They don't know what the mission statement is. And so after I read that, I ask them, why do you exist? Why are you here? Yes. Because many right. organizations actually, I find, uh, exist out of habit. They have a budget. They get together because there's a board of directors that gets together and they have dinner. And they have a budget because we've always had a budget. And we have a slate of candidates because it's that time of year to have a slate of candidates. Um, and these are things that just happen as opposed to stopping and saying, what good are we doing? Why do we exist? Are we actually doing what we set out to do? Um, and are we still needed to do what we do? That is so, that is so exactly right. I learned that years ago from my, um, my mentor, uh, Hank Rosso, who founded the yep. fundraising school. And, and he said, and this is really true, it's a very, very easy way to understand this. He goes, people will always say to you when you work for a nonprofit, they'll say, oh, you work for such and such. What do you do? They say, what do you do? But what they really want to know, and I think it's key, and you just, you just actually said this, Ted, what they really want to know is why do you do it? Why do you exist? And why is very different from what? People can also, I think you're right, they function out of habit. I think they can also give us often a fairly coherent uh, description of what they do. But when you say why, why, and you keep pushing, 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 why do you exist? Why do you, what is the, what is the ontological reason? What is this existential reason that you exist? And, uh, you know, they can't, uh, they often can't do it, or as you say, they don't recognize. Someone else has kind of put that together for them in their bylaws or uh, some strategic plan or something. They don't recognize it. And what I think many organizations are waking up to right now is they're pretty far away from the original uh, um, idea of the founder. And that's okay. You can yeah. change. I mean, I don't, I'm not a, I'm change. not an originalist, but you can change, but you have yeah. to be very deliberate about it. It can't that's just right. happen by, right. by drift. 
Yeah. The other the other technique that that I would often use with uh, with particularly the board of directors is I would say, okay, the next thing I want you to do is I want you to vote yourself out of existence. Of course, that yes. horrifies them. Yes. The very thought of doing that. <laughs> and I, and and I would say, okay, now who cares that you did that? Yeah. Yeah. Who cares that you? Well, don't I think exist? people have lost track, particularly. Um, uh, I mean, I'm sort of amazed sometimes when I, I started out my career in working in um, domestic violence, and I'm amazed when domestic violence uh, organizations and organizations addressing intimate partner violence will launch endowment campaigns. An endowment basically says we need to be around forever, as far into the future forever. as anyone can possibly imagine. We need to exist. And that, you know, Yes, a hospital, yes, a library, yes, an art museum, yes. All those organizations need to be endowed. And it's a very good question to say, will you still be needed in 100 years? And when organizations that do work on homelessness and hunger and domestic violence and so on raise their hands, I think, why? What, what, why can you not imagine an end to your work? You know, what, 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 do you always imagine that people – uh, intimate partners will beat each other up. Is this the best you can do? And do I really want to give your organization money when that's as far ahead as but you also, can think? But people are focus, shocked focus by on who, Right. But also to get them to, to focus on who do you serve? Um, you know, who, yeah, yeah. who, you know, if you, if you just voted yourself out of existence, you know, where are the crocodile tears? You know, who's concerned that you're not here anymore? Who's going to notice that you that the doors aren't open? You know, where are the donors who, who, who are going to notice? And if the answer is, yes, we actually have patients and clients and, and people have – okay, well, then those are really – those are good answers. If you, if you really know, yeah, you know that, who's that, going to miss you. Yeah. That comes back to what we were talking about earlier about recognizing your assets. That's a very good exercise to recognize what, what are your personal assets. What are, where are the relationships with whom – what, what what people, which people will really show up for you? Yeah, so that is a great exercise. I, I would that's say right. people okay. should be doing it regularly. Well, that's why I want to um, now sort of um, turn to sort of the second you know, part or the, the latter part of your book, and that's the long-term payoff, as you say, the, the permanent course correction. So help us in, you know, we've got about 10, 12 minutes left. Um, help us understand, you know, we, we, we've moved from, you know, the immediate steps in the crisis management, understanding the importance of mission and, and message. Um, but what, what puts us on the path to permanent course correction? And, and you, had, you had mentioned very early on in our, in our discussion uh, today that, you know, you hope that, you know, this, this whole notion of, you know, getting back to normal is not, what people are looking to do because you don't want to get back to where you were before you want to actually get back to a better place. So if we're getting back to a better place, um, what is that permanent course correction and how do we get there? Well, you know, that's going to vary a little bit uh, organization by organization, but I think some general things that apply to, to most organizations are one is learning how to be much more straightforward uh, and honest uh, with yourselves, we, we just talked about mission, about what, what is your mission, what does it mean for today, um, who, are your, who are your true supporters who will really show up for you. Uh, but also, say, in terms of a board, 
to really learn how to deal with conflict. This, I notice that even organizations that actually in the world might be addressing, you know, uh, um, sexual violence or they might be addressing uh, corporate greed or cheating or, um, uh, you know, destruction of the environment. So they're, they live in a world where there's a lot of um, conflict and they engage in conflict and advocacy and so on. Internally, they're like little sheep. <laughs> they're like, oh, you know, Mary Jones is on our board and she means well, but she doesn't do much. But, you know, we don't want to hurt her feelings. And it's sort of like, you know, when I look through your mission and your goals, your objectives and your outcomes, I don't see anywhere where it says preservation of Mary Jones' feelings. I just, I might not be finding it. <laughs> you know, help me out here. I love that. <laughs> you know? And I love that. So pe- people have to learn. So that's one is have have much more honesty in your organization. And, you know, because it's also quite possible that Mary Jones doesn't want to be on the board anymore. She's tired. She's been on the board for years. She doesn't really feel it's something she wants to do. But she doesn't want to hurt your feelings by leaving. So right. everybody's running no, around protecting no, no, no. toward what end? You know, and that's it's just so like many one times example. Board, board members don't know how to say goodbye, um, and they don't, mm-hmm. and they don't want to let anybody down. Um, and so, you know, it 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 really is an art to helping board members gracefully say goodbye. Yes, exactly. Uh, the other, so that's one is having a more honest board, having being much more clear. I mean, I uh, have worked with a number of organizations that are, uh, one in particular, I can think of the National Center for Lesbian Rights that. They will interview upwards of 10 people before they bring one person on the board. It is a big deal to get on that board. And, you know, as a consequence, they have a board of people who really want to be on it, who really have, you know, often served on committees or volunteered or done different things like that, and they know what they're getting. So, you know, build out a board that, you know, people say you can't – a board, you know, it's not realistic to have a board – do a lot of fundraising. I disagree. I could name hundreds of organizations where, uh, of all kinds, all kinds of very organizations of very poor communities with people that, you know, don't have very much education, uh, all the way up to all different kinds of organizations. And you will have, everybody will have in common, they know that one of their jobs is fundraising. So it is possible to do that. So that's one is learn to be honest, learn to deal with conflict. Conflict doesn't, doesn't have to kill you. And conflict... You can also uh, practice a, a saying of uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, which is honesty wrapped in kindness. Honesty wrapped in kindness, and that is really something we uh, we want to do. So that's uh, that's one. Uh, two, we've already mentioned this thing about really examining uh, your mission and goals and make sure that they're that everybody's on board with them. First of all, and, and uh, people uh, know what they mean. Um, a third is actually to look, and I think some organizations are doing this a lot, but to look at your staff structure. We often hire people to be, to take a job because that, the same way you do anything else, because that, well, we always had a development director, so we need another one. Like, really? I mean, maybe you want to kind of change around uh, the jobs. And you often see people, I see this all the time, where someone's very, very talented in one aspect of the work, and their reward for that is to constantly be promoted to more and more management and administrative jobs until they're actually uh, in over their heads. They're in a job that they are not suited to, that they don't like, that they hate. You see this all the time, particularly with executive directors. They'll be like, I, I hate 
finances. I hate fundraising. I hate dealing with the boredom like that is your entire job. Like <laughs> you, you hate your right. entire job or really right. talented people who build, who are founding an organization or maybe they come in early on and they build it past their own ability to run it. And instead of then kind of saying, Oh, I'm going to hand this off now to someone who has more experience with a bigger organization. They, they unconsciously shrink it back down. And one thing we haven't talked about, Ted, but I, I would be curious what you think about it. I actually think in the nonprofit sector, there are a large number of people who thrive on crisis. They actually do best. I mean, they, they should all go to work in an emergency room because that's where their talent would be most useful. But they thrive on it, and it's kind of like, oh, we're in a crisis. I feel alive. I can, I can do this. And they don't really know how to build a stable, a solid organization that isn't full of drama. And I, so I think well, that's I think another thing to kind of look at now yeah, in, for the long term. Yeah, I don't know can you stop being a uh, Can you stop eating this drama? Yeah, well, yeah, maybe. I, I don't know if it's necessarily a crisis as it is. I think a lot of people in nonprofit work are used to a high degree of stress, for sure. Yeah. Um, because it's it's rare um, that you are in a nonprofit organization that you're not expected to wear multiple hats. And, and you certainly have to know, be a pretty good juggler. Um, and, yes. and so I think, you know, it, it, does that lend itself to, uh, to, to come to crisis? Yeah, maybe more often than, than many, many nonprofits would like it to, or maybe more often than is healthy, uh, which is, again, sort of part of the message of your of your book, and, and, and by the way, a very clever way to bring us to the final topic here, uh, and that is conquering tomorrow's crisis today. Um, and so in our final five minutes here, um, this is about really planning, you know, your success for tomorrow, right? Because you really, you want to set your organization up for success, and that's by making sure it's more stable. So is this a message of, if you if you are used to crisis, do you do you manage for crisis? And and is part of your message you don't know how to to manage for stability? I think in part, or I would say more, you don't that there's a way in which we don't, and, and this is a cultural thing. I think also we don't know how to see crisis as uh, an opportunity to be creative. Uh, you know, you said uh, people in nonprofits operate under a lot of stress. That's true. But there's good stress and bad stress. And, you know, stress is that, I mean, that's what we do when we do physical exercise and things like that. We stress our hearts, and that's a good thing. Um, and I think in an organization, if you could kind of see, wow, this COVID thing, I mean, I didn't, we don't wish for it. We wish it would go away by a miracle, as our president has promised. But, you know, it's here. Uh, Climate change is here. It's horrible. I mean, let's not add to it. How can we possibly kind of think this is our chance to be super creative? The way we've done things hasn't worked that well, so we have new things. And I would say and part of that is, in a way, not, not looking at this binary of success and failure or stability and instability, but more looking at, what are we learning? Oh, that was a mistake? Okay, that's, mistakes are just information. They give you knowledge. Well, let's not make that mistake again. Let's, make, let's pioneer new mistakes. <laughs> let's get out and make a whole raft of new mistakes. Let's not do the same thing over and over. And so that kind of, 
if you kind of show up every day at work and think, this is my chance to really be creative, to think differently, and to work with other people, the other final thing I would say in our minutes is don't do this alone. I see people too often, they hunker down, they not only hunker down in their little uh, trenches, but they hunker down alone. They don't say, I need help. And we have more and more evidence all the time. It's just a study I read. This was done some time ago, but I just read it recently, where you take a farmer. This is an example of a farmer who has cows, a cattle farmer, and you would say to that person, how much does this cow weigh? And you take a group of people who know nothing about cows, and they live in the city, and they maybe have seen a picture of a cow, and that group of people, and you say, how much does this cow weigh? The group of people will be more accurate than the farmer because there's something about group working together, thinking, adding up variables, pooling your knowledge. I have always found this. I say to people all the time, I love meetings. I don't love every meeting. (laughs) I've been in thousands of meetings. But I love them because I know in a good meeting something will happen, some idea will happen that could not have been generated by any one person alone. So this is also our chance to begin to be really true organizations, true teams of people who kind of say, yes, for the common good, for a thriving, robust community, this is what needs to happen. I don't know it by myself, neither do you, neither does anybody else. Let's all uh, work together and let's pull in as many people as we can. And, again, that is, of course, part of the who, who, who drives this, the board or staff? Well, ideally the board, but in real life probably the, uh, probably the staff or some combination of board and staff. Uh, but he, the person who kind of thinks, I want to do this, like somebody listening right now thinks, I want to do this, what I want that person to do right now is sit and make a list of three other people who they can call and all those people say, yeah, I'm with you. And maybe they won't even be official people in the organization. Maybe it'll just be people that are like, yeah, I'll, I'm with you. I want to do this. And uh, it begins to be fairly magnetic. And that magnetism also attracts money. So the, the key is to get started. So um, we're in our final minute here. So Kim Klein, uh, please tell my listeners how they can reach you. Uh, you're welcome to email me at kim at kleinandroth.com or go to my website, uh, uh, kleinandroth.com, www.kleinandroth.com. Um, and I do want to announce to your listeners also, I used to publish a magazine called the Grassroots Fundraising Journal, and that magazine ceased publication a couple of years ago, but all the articles that were in the journal, and they were terrific, are now available for free. Uh, we have uh, moved them all to the Creative Commons, so you can download them for free. Uh, you can pass them out. You don't have to get permission to use them. You just have to uh, at, uh, give attribution when you use them, and they are now residing at the nonprofit quarterly. So that's a new and exciting resource for everyone, uh, free, and I think people will uh, really enjoy it. And there are about 200 articles posted there now. There will be about 400 by the end of the year. Kim, you are terrific, and thank you for being my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.